1957, Jack Kerouac published his novel, On the Road. A famously wandering tale of adventure on the American roads, this book was originally meant to be even more freeform. Typed on one scroll over the course of 20 alcohol and drug-fueled days, On the Road was such a break from the norm that its author considered it the work of the Holy Ghost. In its final form, the book isn't quite as explicit or spontaneous as originally intended, but it still represents an immediate impression of post-war America that feels very different from Leave it to Beaver. This is the book that launched Jack Kerouac's career and solidified his position as a founding member and possibly the leading figure of the beat movement. There's a lot to unpack in this book that meant so much to both of us in our younger years. So this is only the first of a two-part episode, something we've never done before. So pour yourself some drambouille and scotch, and leave enough for next time as we embark on our discussion of Jack Kerouac and the Beats. It's time for episode 86 of Toasting the Classics, On the Road. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic and we drink something that's inspired by the classic, and then we talk about it, decide whether it's still a classic. My name is Dave MacArthur. And my name is Dr. Clint Lanier. Doctor, I don't have that. I, 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 I could put some letters after my name, but I can't put any before it. Every now and then we have a job opening. We get an uh, uh, application from a new... <laughs> you can tell that they've just graduated, got their PhD, because they right. call themselves Dr. So-and-so PhD. <laughs> nice. like, yeah. Like, Welcome to Toast of the Classics. Uh, what are we doing this week, Davey? We are doing a book that I chose in a bout of um, apparently slightly tipsy choosing uh, during one of the episodes. Yeah. I chose On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And that is On a book the... that um, meant a lot to me as a kid. I haven't read it in a long time, but I used to take it with me on like every road trip when I was uh, a young man. Mm -hmm. I probably mm -hmm. read my old beat up orange penguin copy of it like six times. But that's what came to the tip of my tongue when you asked me what book I was choosing. And so that's what we did. That was and, it. Uh, when did you first read it? That's a good question. I would say it was either my senior year of high school or mm -hmm. my freshman year of college. I got it right around that time and then read it again on my first cross-country road trip a year or two later, and then again on the next road trip that I went on. And I also went through some of the other Kerouac books. I remember having Dharma Bums, Big Sur, Desolation Angels, and I they all blur together, to be perfectly honest. I don't know what's in what book. I learned a little right. bit more about it from doing the research for this episode. I know I remember Desolation Angels really stuck in my head. It's the one where he goes to the mountain peak yeah. and stays up there and does the forest, the fire watching thing uh, for a couple of months. That one really stuck in my head. But otherwise, it's just sort of a blur of a right. bunch of different stories that he tells. So how about you? How, what's your history with this book? I can't tell you when I read it uh, the, for the first time, to be honest with you. But I've read it many times okay. since. I had this. I have it as an ebook that I had downloaded probably when I first got Kindle. So how long has Kindle been out? Um, oh, at, long, in my, long time. Yeah, my library. It's like at the bottom of of the library and it's just one that i would read probably like you i mean you read it like on an airplane or you know something like that and it's always one of those things that when you're traveling you know or when you get a wild hair when i wrote my book bucket list bars uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more but when we did denver the denver chapter mm -hmm. you know a couple mm -hmm. of the places and actually if you go to denver there were these stencils and they're probably i would say maybe three inch by three inch stencils sure. that somebody had spray painted on locations that Kerouac had visited when he was in Denver. Oh, very cool. That's very And you cool. have to find, you have to look for them. I mean, they would spray them like mm -hmm. around the corner at the very like bottom, like to be very unobtrusive. So it's sort of a, yeah. sort of like if you get them, it's kind of like geocaching. Like um, I was just about to say that it's like geocaching. Yeah, right. And so a couple of the bars that we, that we visited have a, have a Kerouac kind of history and legacy. One of them was Cassidy, not Kerouac. The other one is definitely Kerouac and Cassidy, but we can talk well, about that. So, Denver's definitely Cassidy country. I mean, that's like his yeah. whole childhood is in that city. Right. I always thought when it came to Denver, I read on the road before I ever went to Denver. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Denver, I was disappointed. I was like, this is not the city he's talking about. Denver, <laughs> right. Denver to me is just like this big suburb. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I, I love Colorado and I like Denver yeah. because it's in Colorado and it gets me to Colorado. But the mm -hmm. city itself is, I think, super mediocre. I've really never mm -hmm. been a big fan. Yeah, city. I've been to a ball game there. I've been to some mm -hmm. breweries, things like that. But nothing you can't do in in a hundred other cities, basically. I think I think you need to give Denver a bit more of a shake, you know, an honest shake. As far as the, it's the downtown area is uh -huh. really where, and that's where all of this took place. That's where the bars were that that he uh -huh. went to. A lot of them still exist. The places that he uh, mentioned, just just one. Well, no, not places that he mentions because uh -huh. he he you know he didn't use the real names, but places that they went to. 
there's really only one. One closed during COVID, and the other clo- the other still still there. Okay. And again, I'll, I'll give. We can talk about the details first. Why don't you give us a summary for the? For, okay, we've got maybe five listeners. There's one that might not have read this book. So, how right. would you summarize right. this book? This book is broken up into five different books. Now we can summarize. Really, the writing of the book is definitely worth talking about in some detail as well as just a synopsis of the plot because the plot is thin. The, the plot is autobiographical details, basically, strings yeah. of anecdotes, which definitely have a narrative. But mm-hmm. in terms of a plot, there really isn't much of a plot. It's his, it circles around his obsession with this one guy, Neil Cassidy. And by the way, I want to make this parenthetical statement. I read the original scroll for the first time mm-hmm. in my life. Oh, okay. Doing, doing this show so on the tip of my tongue are all the proper names of the people alan Ginsburg, oh interesting Cassidy, yeah okay they're all referred to by their actual names in the scroll yeah. so i can't even remember i was trying to remember what is alan alan ginsburg is like carlo marx or something like that yeah that's carlo marx uh bull lee is burroughs that one yeah i remember that um, and then um dean moriarty and dean sal moriarty is and yeah. sal Perez, yeah the, the scroll is like a Romana clay. It's the actual characters. You're actually hearing mm. what did Allen Ginsberg do on this particular night and things like yeah. that, which is, I think, better. But I can see why he didn't do it in a lot of ways sure. because they do things. There, There's one scene where Neil and Jack Kerouac steal a car yeah. and then and then escape from Denver just in time to not get arrested for stealing the car. <laughs> right. And I was, I was thinking... He released the book like eight years later. You could still be arrested for stealing a car eight yeah. years later. If, I don't if know. It depends on the statute of limitations. Of it depends on the statute of limitations, but something yeah. like a felony, I think the statute of limitations might be, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't bother, but you'd be taking a risk. Let's just say. Right. Sure. So, so basically, so basically, but, but you know, the, the gist of the book is that you've got a guy living in New York city and that's Kerouac. Right. It's, it's autobiographical. Kerouac keeps moving West on these, uh, was there four road trips or three road trips? I can't remember. There's five um, books, and I would say some, four definite road trips. And the some of them take place. The book is not real. Yeah, some of them are yeah. some of them return trips, right? Um, but but so I think he went. I think he went west three times, if I remember correctly. Maybe four. Three? It depends on whether you count the Mexico trip, because there's the trip where they go to Mexico. Would, from, would that be four? I think that went to Denver and the, down. That's the fourth book. Yeah. So I think. Okay. I think a trip from a trip from Denver to Mexico City is a little different than a cross country American okay. road, trip, but it's definitely a big road trip. But he question. went he went west, and there's this thing about movement east to west, and about mm-hmm. a contrast in a different America, you know, or yeah. a different different place, you know. So there's so it's a, it, it is it's about these different experiences, road trips, basically, and yeah, they all somehow revolve around Neil Cassidy or this guy named I just lost it, uh, Dean Moriarty. In the, Dean in the- Moriarty, yeah. Dean Moriarty, which is a, his his name in, in the book. I should say original publication. The scroll yeah. is the original right. writing. Right, that's the right. The publication that came out, was it, it's 57, right, is the original Correct. publication. Correct, yeah, 57, date. that's right. Yeah, so the 57 yeah. book yeah. that's published is very different from what I read, although yeah. I, it's all the same stories. They're just, yeah. there's different, there's some different things that happen. They could have a lot of the graphic sexual yeah, stuff. And, you know, it's not too bad. It's I wouldn't say it's graphic. It's by today's standards, yeah. By today's standards, it's just standards, it's just sure. an, it's just explicit, and I mean by explicit, what I mean is it's an explicit statement that somebody's having sex. It's right. really not graphic at all. Yeah. I, there's really not anything like that would count as dirty by anybody's standards yeah. today. It's just literally like instead of hinting that Neil might have had sex with the guy, he's like Neil had sex with this guy. But yeah. that's that's the it's really not well, explicit. Really and and you've graphic. got you've got a lot of things working against you there because you've got. Uh, premarital sex, extra marital sex, and you've got homosexual, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, <laughs> gay sex, exactly. you know, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that you got to cut out for sense of decency back then. But um, yeah, and and so there's this this Neil Cassidy is a friend of, of Jack Kerouac's. Uh, long, uh, he was a friend of all the beats, really. And we'll get into that in a second. But uh, he he meets Neil in New York City and decides to go west to go find him. Uh, he knows that he's in Denver. So he goes to Denver, and then he just kind of keeps moving west, ends up in San Francisco, and then L.A., and then comes back on that trip. And then on another trip, Neil comes over to visit him, and then they go back together. It does involve Neil, but it's it's sort of the same cast of characters. And yeah. through these through these kind of tales like you just told, like they steal a car, 
or they, they you know steal this or steal that. They somehow bum money off of people, but they they never have any money. They're all but they're always getting drunk and getting drugs. There's a lot, a lot of bar hopping for people that don't have money. Yeah, which which it's we'll fifty dollars across the whole country. He started his first trip. Mm-hmm. He had fifty dollars. His mother gave him to cross the. Sorry, in the book, I think it, in, the, in yeah. the original book, it's his aunt, right? Yeah, it's his it's his aunt, but it's in in real life, it's his mom, Gabrielle. It's his mother in the yeah. scroll. It's his mother explicitly. Yeah. So he has fifty dollars across the whole country, which I I saw somewhere is like six hundred bucks today, and I was right. thinking. I could get across America on 600 bucks, but I would not be doing any bar hopping along the right. way. It would be like eating right. sandwiches and paying for gas. And that would be about it. Yeah. Like I, that, that would yeah. get you across the country and nothing else. But I think, you know, it's, I think it, it might've been possible that at that time, you know, hitchhiking was, again, it was a, it was a different time. I mean, people would pick up other people on the side of the road and, and, right. you know, you know, you always hear about, well, when I was a kid, we didn't have to lock our doors. And that was the kind of, kind of, environment that he was doing this in i mean they were the first class of scoundrels really there's a connection there that's really interesting to me that just occurred to me right now is that Mm -hmm. a lot of people attribute america's awareness and fear of crime to the Mm -hmm. book in cold blood which is like you know a contemporary of this book almost almost the same time those two books came out yeah truman capote is the guy who said that kerouac didn't was it wasn't writing it was just typing typing. (laughs) which is very unfair there are some other critiques of the book that i thought made a lot more sense but that one i was like come on you're just jealous i mean it's truman capote's a great writer but he's a more he's a more traditional style of writer right Right. yeah Um, absolutely but but the two books are very similar. If you read In Cold Blood, I mean, it's the the the, the road trip narrative of Dick and Perry is very much mm-hmm. like what's going on with. It's like right. an outsider looking at what Jack and Neil right. are like. But right, and so but what happens is that that's what America becomes. But when right. when they were because he was actually doing this between fifty one and fifty four was when this was taking place. He published it in fifty seven. It, it happened earlier. It happened forty seven through forty nine. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. He wrote, he started, the book, he, he wrote it in 51. My wrote apologies. it in yeah, April. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah the sitting 51. down and, yep. and creating the scroll yep. is, I think, a 20-day right. period in, was did you say 51? I think it was 51. I think, yeah. I think it's yeah. April of 1951. Yeah. Is when he sat down That's right. All the stories so, are actually taking place. And that's in the back of my mind. I can't help always thinking World War II just does happened, not, yeah. doesn't get mentioned as much as you would think. Considering it just ended, yeah. and it's the central fact of everybody's life, it's weird how little they talk about it. Yeah, everybody. What What did Neil do during the war? Was he not in the? Maybe he was too young. He's I think he was in jail. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's probably right. in jail. Yeah, that's um, right. He was. In he was a jail. felon. You know, I mean, he he'd gone yeah. to state pen and everything else. So. Yeah, that's um, right. You don't. They don't let you fight if you're unless unless you're Russian. Uh, you don't. You don't right. conscript people who are. Yeah, if you're Russian, you go to you go to the front line and. Yeah. Sorry, mate. Like I said, they were the first class of sort of scoundrels that would do this sort of thing. I remember watching a uh, Mayberry. What's that show? Oh, the Andy Griffith show. Andy Griffith show. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that was set in the 50s. I think it actually came out in the 60s, but it was sort of hailing to the 50s. And that was a sort of town that Mayberry, like South Carolina or something like that, sort of place where you don't lock your North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. So you don't we lock your doors. To, uh, and- my, uh, my great aunt lived near the town that mayberry is based on and okay i, I think it's mount airy north carolina if i remember nah, right but maybe not anyway the whole town has a cottage industry of like yeah no oh, i'm sure yeah mayberry. but that was the kind of place where you don't lock your doors and all this other stuff and there was an episode where a tramp moves in uh-huh. into town and andy griffith's job was sort of to shoo the tramp away like we don't right. like your kind here and he was doing that that sort of those sort of hijinks that tramps would do like he would steal an apple pie from the from the windowsill right. and Aunt, Aunt, Aunt B would be like, where's my apple pie? I just put it right. here. You know, and he would yeah. steal laundry and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, Opie would go down and, oh, he gave me some apple pie. And and all that. he was wearing a shirt that looked just like yours. And and so that was the kind of people that the, the ne'er-do-wells. But you didn't have people that were like thieving, you know, like we're stealing cars and doing this kind of stuff. This is some more serious crime. And, and he talks about, it's weird because he talks about people like that. He talks about tramps as being other, and he talks about hipsters, and I don't Mm -hmm. know what he means by hipsters. I don't don't know who he's talking about. Obviously, a hipster owns a loft in Williamsburg and makes his own cottage mead. You know that that's what hipster. 
in 2023. That's not that's <laughs> right. not what he's talking right. about. I don't. Yeah. I, I I was trying to get the sense of what he meant by that word, and also he refers to gay people by dropping f bombs all the time, talking about them. And yeah. I thought that was strange, considering that most of the people he hangs out with are gay. So what does he mean by that word too? I, I mean, I don't know. Was it derogatory? I mean, at the time, it, he, it became. I, I don't not like it is today, but he, it's a class of person that's different than him. You could tell he's othering yeah. people, calling them that word. And mm -hmm. I don't know what he means. Maybe he just means they're they're very effeminate. Maybe it's not about being you know, sexual. It might about. it might not be that he's othering people. That he's doing it. I think he's using the othering term that everybody else uses for him. Maybe no, no, no. He's he's definitely no. the guy that the guy that they meet that um, gives them a ride and Neil. Oh, like oh, a, oh, yeah, yeah. Oppositions yeah. him and Neil, and he definitely refers to that guy in a derogatory fashion as being yeah. Uh, you know, an F oh i think you know maybe it's, it has something to do with like a lech or something because that's all that guy was, was wanting yeah. versus like like because carlo marx is and he and he alludes to it throughout you know right. is is gay he never yeah. talks about him that way either i saw an interview by alan ginsburg talking about kerouac uh -huh. and he's talking about this um tv interview that kerouac did where he keeps mixing up the guy's name jablonski and calling him abramowitz and, and uh -huh. the guy's like, what are you, oh, I guess you're anti-Semitic. And Alan Ginsberg's like, oh, he got accused of being anti-Semitic, which he was. You know, but I'm like, <laughs> but like, you, like, you guys are friends. And so it's a weird we thing all, going we, on. We could all get along, I guess. No, yeah, it's, maybe, um, maybe he saw Alan Ginsberg as being like one of the good ones. You know, like, That's I, sort of I, what yeah, I was thinking. I have lots I think of there, I think there's the in crowd. Like, I hate gay people, but you're okay. You know, right. I don't, I'm not talking right. about you, you know. Exactly. Like my, my, my grandparents, you know, that's something like a grandma would do. Like, oh, I hate these type of people. Not them, though, because they're okay. Oh, my God. I, I, I think I told this anecdote before. But my grandfather would always say, he'd be like, oh, I have this client. He's black, but he's nice. And I'd be, <laughs> I, I always thought I always thought my grandfather was like being really racist saying that. But I realized years later, it was because my grandmother was so bigoted. That if my yeah. grandfather mentioned someone black, she'd have a conniption yeah. fit about it. So he'd always well, be like, no, no, this guy's really nice. Trust me. Like My, my grandma would, would differentiate between Mexicans and Spanish people. And so uh, Regina's parents were, the, were a really nice Spanish family. And then she couldn't stand these Mexican people down the street. <laughs> that type of thing. And it's you know, like, right. okay, right. grandma. You know. Yeah, the arbitrary anyway. classifications. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's what it sounds like to me. Him using that yeah. word about some people, but... Also, though, I think I think there's the a bit of bit of uh, you know in the time type of terminology that we might not have. And he was also, you know, they were also really big into jazz and to sort of this this yeah. underground jazz scene. And I think so, yeah. you know, dig it and hip and and these types right. of words. I think a lot of that comes from from that because those weren't commonplace hipsters and hip and that kind of stuff. They weren't commonplace terms, I don't think, unless you're sort of in that crowd the sort of jazz jazz crowd that they were in. And they were like into real jazz, not the not the white oh, yeah. big band jazz. They were like, you Well, know. they were somewhere somewhere between Charlie Parker's ornithology period and and Miles Davis, right? <laughs> right, which is explained to us. Yeah. Speaking of really cool crowds, I think we should mm -hmm. talk about what we're drinking, which is a drink oh, okay. that was God. imbibed by a pretty cool crowd. I didn't know this. I picked it because I knew Jack Kerouac liked it. But apparently this is the rusty nail and apparently yeah. it was a favorite of the rat pack apparently it was associated with sinatra and sammy davis jr and who who's in the rat pack i've, I've okay, i'm trying so to think sinatra sammy davis jr dean martin uh -huh. dean martin uh, right. yeah dean martin those are the the main three guys and you had people yeah. like joey lawrence or joey bishop one of the two it can't yeah, be joey, joey whoa yeah. whoa <laughs> it's definitely no, not joey, joey joey bishop is that the guy's name i don't um, know i i don't think i've ever engaged with anything rat pack somehow that's just missing from my cultural education huh. i can't think of what what would i is it a mo are they in movies together they well they were in the oceans 11 right oceans 11 yeah that's where that's okay. where it's so if i watch the original yeah. one if i watch that maybe i that would be an interesting thing to do for the show actually i, mean, I think I've they seen... called they called themselves the rat pack um, okay because they like during the filming of oceans 11 what they did was they they would film it uh, and they would actually perform at the Sands or something. And mm -hmm. so you'd be able to see Dean Martin, those three, Dean Martin, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And, and Sinatra perform together. And there's a few surviving YouTube videos of it. And they would just sort of do this ad-lib comedy thing. And they'd make fun of each other. Like I remember one time Frank Sinatra goes to a table and picks up like this huge vase off the middle of the table. 
And he mm-hmm. says, uh, oh, Mr. Barton, your drink's here, you know, making oh, yeah. fun of him for being a drunk and stuff. And everybody laughs at him and stuff like that. And it's like a live just, podcast. Yeah. One of the funniest was when uh, there was a uh, a scene or for some reason, Sammy Davis Jr. leaps into, I can't remember if it's Dean Martin's arms or Frank Sinatra's arms or something like that. Everybody laughs at that. And without batting an eye, whoever he's is holding him is says, I'd like to thank the, the NAACP for this award. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. Um, that's pretty good. I like that. That's a good okay, one. Okay. So the Rusty, Rusty Nail, I didn't, I didn't realize. So it was created about in the 1960s, apparently, in, in New York City. Well, 1935 was another date that I read, but it's not very old. It's, it's a cocktail. the Rusty Nail, definitely, yeah, in the 60s. I think. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's from, it's from sort of the cocktail days. You'd have like the Brandy Royal and things like that. It's one and a half ounces of scotch, three quarter ounce of drambuie, and a dash of bitters. So, so basically, a oh, a dash of bitters. I didn't. I don't have bitters. Darn it! I didn't catch that. I have a whole bunch of bitters. It's all in storage. I have a box of like really good stuff. Oh, you're going to get later. But I'm I'm going with a two to one ratio, which is I think what you just said also. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it, apparently, you can kind of vary it. But um, I've never had Drambuie before, and it was not super easy to find in New York. I, ha- I went to, Really? That's interesting. I think it was the... Well, okay. Let me put it this way. It, but by not easy oh, to bo- find... Bodega. Me, yeah. I had yeah, to go... Bodega. No, no. I went to liquor stores. I went to four okay. different liquor stores asking for Drambuie. One of them, I had to speak Spanish. The lady just was staring at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I had to... Donde esta Drambuie? I had to go to the fourth place. And when I say hard to find in New York, what I mean is um, I had to go to four liquor stores. But, of course, there are four liquor stores within a four-block radius. It just took oh, me wow. some time. It really, really wasn't that difficult. Took you some walking to do. Yeah. Why don't you, as the historian of alcohol, tell us a little bit about Drambuie? Drambuie is interesting. Uh, so, created, I think, created about the 18th century for um, Bonnie Prince, whatever his name was. Um, that's the legend, right? That's interesting. Yeah, that's the legend. Charles Edward Stewart. That's right, and uh, and so really, all, it's just it's, like all I taste is scotch. It's, Did I do uh, that wrong? Oh, wait a minute! I forgot. I forgot. Look, I actually have <laughs> a nail. You actually have a nail. Because to some people, there. some people think that the the reason it's called a rusty nail is because you stir it with a rusty nail. I don't uh, think there's much backing for that. I and don't uh, I don't, I don't from. actually keep rusty nails in my house, so I just have a yeah. nail nail, like regular galvanized, bright, common nails. <laughs> so I'm still, sorry, I, I cut you off. I, I I wanted to mention that I'm stirring my drink with a nail. Nice, nice. It's a secret recipe, you know, uh, one of those things. It's just kind of an industrial recipe, but it's it's just scotch, uh, honey, and some spices. Okay. So if you drink it by itself, it's really close to Grand Marnier. What what is Grand Marnier? It's so that's brandy. It's a brandy based liqueur. Well, okay, but it's very so, similar to it. Yeah. The Drambuie, according to the history that I looked at, was originally mm-hmm. brandy and then was changed to be scotch as the the base uh, it pretty much would have been grand marnier and then they changed I it i didn't read that at all it, it might they might mean that there existed a brandy and honey because it was sort of a medicinal i mean it, it would revive you supposedly the prince would take a few drops every day or whatever and you know this is back when when people were lucky enough to think of alcohol as medicine instead of a poison like today no i so it, it, it might have it might have been it might have been that hey you know this brandy and honey are really good for you well, they're in Scotland, so they don't have brandy. And actually, even in England at that time, they wouldn't have brandy because there's an embargo on it. So they would use the next best thing, which was which was scotch. So scotch and honey. That's I mean, it might that might be. You never know. That was something about the story of scotch, right? That we we talked about early in the show, where they used brandy casks because they had brandy casks laying around after an embargo or something like that. That's that's why they. The English were at war with the French, uh, the French, many, many times, right. and so they they couldn't Always. get brandy. Brandy was the spirit of choice for the upper crust in right. England for the longest time, and when they couldn't get it any longer, they sort of switched to Scotch whiskey, which was being made uh, from the 16th century on. So that became sort of their 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 poison of choice, so to speak, until they started making gin, and then. All hell broke loose. So this is going to be a pretty strong drink, I would think. We got a you got scotch on scotch. You know, you got scotch. Yeah, I mean the Drambuie is scotch. Drambuie is what? What kind of what kind of uh, proof are we talking? Forty percent, right? So forty percent is that Drambuie is forty percent? I can't remember if it was forty percent or forty proof. I wish they didn't have those two things. I know the difference, but I can't remember which number I read. 
but I think it's about the same proof as the scotch itself. So I think you're pretty much just drinking a, a I, I poured myself a pretty good yeah. pour. With the proportions yeah, it's, it's much yeah, as, did, as did I, it's 80 proof. Well, I think that's what sort of why it's called a rusty nail. It's not a sweet okay. cocktail. It's not super sweet. It's not. It has no, a it has a hint of. I mean, you're pouring sweetened scotch into scotch. You yeah. know, yeah. So you just <laughs> slightly less sweetened sweetened scotch. Right. Yeah. So so and you're so you're watering down that sweetened scotch by a ratio of two to one, as you mentioned. The bitters do spring it a little bit. They open it up a bit, so it's not as scotchy as that. And I mean, if you were drinking a a pretty low class scotch, like not very smooth. Which you can get pretty easy, like Clan McGregor or one of those. I can see I it being. Doers. I think rusty, rusty nail might be a good description of it, right? Ugh. Yeah, it could be. You know. Yeah, I, I have, I have doers. I didn't want to. I had like the 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 last little bit of a bottle of Macallan, and I'm like, I'm not going to waste that on yeah, mixing. Yeah. Or something. So good. I good. decided to go ahead and get a twenty dollar. I I, can, I I don't remember what you call these, but three hundred seventy five milliliter bottle of doers. But that's probably all you need. Yeah. I, I will say this just to clarify: uh, Kerouac drank everything. <laughs> he drank everything yeah, he could. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, and so many different drinks get a mention yeah. in this book. Right. So we could have done anything. I just happened to find an article that talked about him reading, uh, sorry, drinking rusty nails. So yeah. I figured I've never had that. Let's give that a shot. Sure. So, yeah. Oh, the one thing I didn't mention about Drambuie is so Drambuie means a drink that satisfies. Right. And I realized. I, and it's a it's Gaelic, and I realized, oh, dram! I actually know that word for for a drink. That's actually right. like a word that came over to English. So that's kind of an easy way. Yeah, as a measurement. I was kind of yeah. surprised. I was surprised to find that's Gaelic. I didn't know what drambuie was at all. I had no conception mm-hmm. of what it was. This is my total first experience with it, which is pretty cool. I love it. Which is it's not bad. I mean, it's by it. itself. There are a lot of recipes that have drambuie that are much better than a rusty nail, which is okay. Admit, admittedly, very very simple. But there's some that you mix cream with it. Since it's a, a sweet drink and makes really good mixed drinks. We were talking about the crowd that they hung out with and how much they like jazz. What that what that kind of brings me to thinking about is the style of the book, which is very, I think, innovative. I don't think there's anything really like this quite before. And the way that the way that he got to it is really interesting because he was he had all these notes. They took all the trips for a couple of years, and he had all these notes to put together a book which I would say would be a very traditional format for a novel about right. two guys going across the country and having some of the same themes and metaphors and things that end up being in the main book. But it was a lot less autobiographical. So he was working on writing the book as a traditional novel, and it sounded dull. It sounded like something I wouldn't have been interested in. Like maybe maybe right. you would read it, but it just, you know, Truman Capote's book uses some of these same road trips and things like that but it happens to be a much more interesting story underneath. Mm-hmm. Right. But what ended up happening is actually Neil Cassidy, Neil Cassidy sat down and wrote a 45 page, essentially like this style, just like a free verse thing, just talking about us. Not is it stream of consciousness. Would you say this is stream of consciousness? Not quite right. That's, that's mm-hmm. like Falk. This is a little different than that. There is some structure and some plot to it and there's punctuation and stuff like that. But it's very free and very it's very impressionistic version of English prose. So he wrote this this 45 page letter talking basically about all the girls he'd ever hooked up with. Um, mm. And he sent it to Kerouac. Kerouac read it and was so inspired that he wrote a letter back to Neil Cassidy in this style. And then very soon afterwards, sat down and just wrote this book in the mm-hmm. course of what we said, like 20 days writing 6,000 words a day and then even more, maybe 10,000 words a day for what, how many pages would that be? It's like 300. So like, that's like 20 pages a day, ramping up to more like 30 or 40 pages a day, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is a pretty good clip. If you ask me as having, as, some, yeah, as someone, absolutely. who, but you know what, this kind of writing, I think I could do this kind of writing for 20 pages a day because yeah, it's just less crafted. If you know what I mean, if, if you were in the right zone, did you try listening to some of the music that gets mentioned? Mm-mm. No, I didn't. Did you? I, yeah, I put on a whole bunch of it, like while I was reading and then while wow. I was putting my notes together. I actually had this moment right before we got on online together. I had this moment. I actually ended up with a lot of notes about this because it's just an mm-hmm. interesting subject to me. And I had a moment where I was like, I should have cut the margins off of the pages, gotten some tape, <laughs> taped together 
my notes into a big right. long and I realized that would be impossible to work with while sure, sitting. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm, a, I'm much yeah. more practical, I guess, than than these artistic types. But well it's easier it's easier, I guess, if you're typing. I mean he had he had so there's no paragraph breaks, no margins on the scroll. Right. Can you imagine being the editor of this thing? Oh nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah, I have this book. Here's a scroll. Yeah. Well, there was this whole story about how he showed up at What's the guy's name? Giraud? Robert Giraud, I think, was the guy who was the publisher who had, who yeah. had dealt with mm -hmm. the, town, the town and the city. Yeah. His first, mm -hmm. And he shows up at his house and he gives him this scroll and he tells him it's been written by the Holy Ghost. And basically, basically the guy was like, um, yeah, there's great writing in here, but we really need to edit it a ton and we need to do yeah. a lot with this and change it. And he was so he told him he had offended the Holy Ghost and he stormed off. <laughs> and he ended up leaving the scroll with the guy. And the end of my my book, book five, cuts off and essentially the guy's dog ate the last part of the scroll oh wow so this version of the, the book i have the, this version of the scroll they actually went back and recreated with a bunch of marginalia and stuff like that mm -hmm. and, the, and the final version the 51 sorry the 57 version of the novel is published and they tried to recreate what had been on the last few pages of the scroll um, that the dog chewed up, which I don't know. Is that where that uh, archetype comes from? The trope of the dog eating your homework? Maybe. I don't know. That's terrible. It's hard to imagine. But um, yeah, so basically that that whole process of sitting down and writing the whole thing, I think that's a big part of the mythos of the book. Mm -hmm. Had you mm -hmm. heard of all that before? The whole scroll process? Oh, yeah. Of yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, prob probably not when I first read it, but I mean, I, you know, as a literature major, you learn about these things yeah. in American lit and stuff like that. So I'm sure I learned it somewhere. I don't know where I learned it from, but you know, that was, I know that the owner of the Colts owns the original scroll. Yeah. yeah that's um, crazy. I saw that. He story. bought it for like 2.8 million or something. 2.3 million for 2. it. 2.3 million. And it's is, probably, it'll probably go for a lot more if he wanted to sell it to the Smithsonian that's what or something I was, like that. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking he bought it. Right. And that seems strange, right? The kind of guy who owns the cults. Is that guy really a big literature fan? That seems fair. But you weird. know what? I, I, he probably maybe, bought it as an investment. Like maybe, he but, to own the piece of art, you know? but I will say this for him. It it actually went on traveling display and it went mm -hmm. uh, throughout yeah. Europe and England and in, in the US. And it went to like, I think the Smithsonian and it went to, uh, you know, various museums and so forth. So, I mean, mm -hmm. good, good for him. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it's because there are plenty of millionaires that buy things and then hide them you know, put them on oh. the yacht or something and nobody ever sees them again, but good for him to buy it and then display it. So cool. I was just reading this whole, uh, I can't remember it was New Yorker or New York times, but I was just reading this whole article about this one family that would literally go out, literally go out and buy every single work of art by somebody. Mm -hmm. Like they cornered everything David Hockney had ever done that they could possibly get their hands on mm -hmm. just to hold on to it long enough to raise the price on David Hockney and make him seem like a really hot commodity and then yeah. so that that's just wow yeah that's not they what sell, so they could dump it all yeah i'm doing that yeah. with hunter biden's actually so is he an art yeah. is he an artist of some kind hunter biden oh he's a hugely famous artist absolutely i don't know all i don't know is he does a lot of crack or whatever but you know, <laughs> it this maybe maybe i'm just a philistine maybe i'm just a really dumb guy but to me the art market, the whole thing seems like the emperor's clothes. I mean, it just seems mm -hmm. a lot of the time like people are buying stuff and you're like, how do you know this is any good? Yeah, I mean, right. Can I could I see some value in having a Mark Rothko on my wall? Yeah, because it's Mark Rothko. I could tell people, yeah. hey, this is a Mark Rothko, but you don't look at that and you, it does anything for you. Right. And right. And like right. to and to bring it back to the book that we're talking about, I saw a quote from, and I don't remember if he said it. In the text of the book, you can let me know if it's in there because obviously you would recognize it too. But he said something about how if you can't take a piece of art and give it to a common person and have them understand it and enjoy it on some level, that that's a dead art. And I was thinking that's, I think that's exactly, I think I've always thought that and I've never quite expressed it that way because I was always impressed. I think I might've told you the story one time, but when I lived in New Orleans, I lived next to a performing arts high school. And you used to see these kids, these little kids walking down the street, playing their trombone and their trumpet and like playing jazz together. And then mm -hmm. you'd go to the bars and there'd actually be like 25 year old guy on stage playing jazz. And mm -hmm. I was thinking in New Orleans, this is a living art form. Like people mm -hmm. are doing this and it's for the regular young and young people are doing it. And that mm -hmm. to me is a living art form. And it's the same with anything that people can't really, you know, if you write a, if you write a novel and it's unintelligible to like 
99% of people, it's really mm-hmm. only for people in academia or something. That's yeah. not, that's, that's, that's art, but it's not a living art. It's like something that. Yeah. Has, I don't know. That's, 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 really, that's, a, that's certainly an uh, interesting debate. And I've struggled that myself. I had a moment of existential crisis when I was at a, at a university one time. You know, there's this there's this whole rush to get tenure when you're an academic. So, which I'm I'm up for tenure now, and so kind of I can appreciate it. But I've I've left two previous tenure track jobs before getting tenure. I'm looking forward to you getting tenure, just so we can actually yeah. hear what you really think on these. <laughs> well, you know, it's going to happen. Absolutely. So you stop. So you but, stop. Uh, at the end of every academic year, you have to like list all the publications that you that you wrote for that year, blah, blah, blah. And, and you have, you do have a specific number. Like you have to have, before you can go up for tenure, you might have to have five peer reviewed journal articles or something like that. Um, So it's a real, this rush for tenure is a real thing. And uh, my crisis came when I realized like I I spent all this time doing a study and writing this journal article and submitting it to the journal and getting feedback from the peer review and revising it and everything else. And so it took me like, six months to do the research it took me maybe another six or seven or eight months for the writing process and then it was published like a half year later so a year and a half later yeah. from when i started this thing all this work and i realized it's a super obscure journal it's really yeah. for only one discipline and there might be 20 people that actually read this article it's pretty depressing if you think about it that way but the purpose of do well if what was your what was your thesis about Oh, it wasn't a thesis. It was a research article, but it was about, oh, it was some well, research, whatever, but some but research mean, study that I did. But I guess what I mean, what I, what I was going to say is that the purpose of that is not necessarily art. The purpose of that is hopefully to push forward the boundaries of some scholarly discipline, you know? Right. So it's only 20 people, you know, like when Einstein wrote his papers in the, in, you know, when he wrote his paper on special relativity, there were very few people could understand it, but it was still important. That's because, true. But, but see, pushing for it. Pushing but for the he, boundaries. Of he, he wasn't writing it. He wasn't writing it for this process or machinery. No. Um, right, yeah. In my case, I was writing it for a process of tenure. I mean, that's really the only reason I, I sort of did this. And right. nobody would really care about it. Nobody would really care about it, but I checked the box. And I guess what I'm what I'm doing is I'm drawing similarities to this to an artist who is doing it for an industry or for a machine. And nobody really cares about it. Nobody really appreciates it nobody really wants it but yeah you're um, i guess what you're almost what you're describing is like the um the academic version of um paintings that are going to be hung on the wall at denny's or or in a hotel or something. maybe so yeah they, maybe they have so. to they have to be there there has they to have, be yeah, it's it's weird if there wasn't yeah. but, you know nobody's nobody's going to be holding a you know a symposium yeah. talking about the uh well you know and interestingly enough this happens in in literature all the time i mean this book was was hugely impactful, but it was impactful because the art the art world, like the intellectuals, glommed onto it. Right? Mm-hmm. This isn't you know people. I would say that outside of his league of of friends, maybe five or six people, uh-huh. nobody else he interacted with in the book would ever read it. Like the uh, the cotton, like the the, oh, the yeah. Mexican girl Ooh, in, in in Los Angeles. You know, like what do we do call? What she's call real. Probably. Yeah, probably. So. I had this weird impression. And the only reason I always thought that was sort of an invented episode. But the reason I sort of thought it was real is because when in the scroll, her name is mm-hmm. Beatrice. Mm-hmm. And in the and in the book, he changes her name. And I was thinking he wouldn't have changed her name if it wasn't a real right. person. Right. I always thought that part sounded like some kind of weird fantasy he had about hooking up with a Mexican girl. And yeah, you know, there was there was some aspect of it that, that felt untrue to me. But I don't know. Maybe I was wrong about that. Sorry, that was yeah. a parenthetical. You were no, 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 no. It's fine. No, my, yeah, my point. Right, right. Point a lot that, of the people like, he interacts with, a lot of the people he interacts this. with, yeah. are just kind of salt of the earth, regular right. people. I think that's what infatuated these people with Neil Cassidy so much is that he bridged the gap between those two worlds. Yeah, because he's yeah, very, yeah. you know, he's like a felon and like a guy off the street. He's like borderline mm-hmm. illiterate, but yeah. also very smart and can run yeah. in these circles of intellectuals. And I think that was and Kerouac. I think has an image of being kind of that guy too, because he's a little bit more between the worlds than some of the other guys, mm-hmm. but definitely, definitely an intellectual and, and, and has a pedigree. I mean, he was at Columbia university and stuff like that. So yeah. Well, he had, he had, earth, you know? he had, well, no, he had blue collar roots. So um, he had blue collar roots. Yeah, that's for true. sure. And you know, and the reason he got to Columbia is for the football scholarship. So I that's mean, right. That's um, right. 
you know, and, and he had to leave once he broke his leg. So, I mean, he no, he didn't um, have to leave. He broke his yeah, leg. He, chose he broke his leg, yeah. and he and he and he dropped out of school in a peak. Like he got yeah. so angry, he just left with school and quit with a coach. Yeah. If you look at a novel, though, pick up any novel off of your bookshelf. Ninety nine point nine nine percent chance it, it won't be written in this style. No, you know, it, it'll be written Not in the traditional lot. style, right? So the this, only thing I've was... ever the, the Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs is about the only thing I've ever read because even Hunter S. Thompson, the prose is way more structured than this. I yeah. thought maybe I don't know. Am I remembering it wrong? I feel like it was a lot more structured than this was, but uh, it's, it's very it's similar. It, it's definitely related yeah. to it in a lot of ways. And yeah. they, they ended up, I guess, there ended up being sort of a fracture within the community of what's the overall counterculture type writers, mm-hmm. right? Because there's Kerouac's group, and then. There was Ken Casey later, mm-hmm. yeah. and actually, weirdly enough, through Neil Cassidy. Neil Cassidy and Ken Kesey started hanging out, and that sort of started that that wave of guys that were more like in the early 60s. Right. Uh, and uh, Kerouac just couldn't get along with those guys, and he had nothing to do with them. Yeah. He was very, very different than them. He was more traditional, and I think probably most importantly, he was about five years older than they were, and he was sensitive think- about it. There's a couple of parts in the book where he gets really sensitive about his age relative to yeah. Neil Cassidy, which I thought right. was really strange. I didn't really understand what was going on there, but whatever. You know what's weird about Kerouac? It, it's this, like, he was a very firm Catholic, like, uh-huh. yeah. uh, and he identified as a Catholic. He said, I'm a Catholic. And right. he said that on the road was about, he's a Catholic, <laughs> you know, and all this other stuff. Don't you think with Catholics, it's a lot like Jewish people? A lot of the time it's more of an ethnic identification and not so much like you're not so much saying I really truly believe in this thing. It's just like, Oh, I'm a Catholic. I'm no. Asian. Well, I mean, it, it could be, but, but not, not for him. He was, he was adamant. I mean, but no, nah, he's not living. It, he's not living any of the tenets of being a Catholic with the things he does. And, uh, and I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's not, I, I can't, I can't say whether he does or not. I mean, his, They've looked at his journals and his diaries, and every day he has like a prayer or a that's interesting. Uh, I didn't or he has that. a sketch of a sketch of a crucifix, and this is like every day. I mean, it was always on his mind. Okay, um, but that's more. But I guess what I'm saying is those are almost like an emotional connection because because he's that, and this is uh, right up there. One of the things I was the most surprised about. I knew he was of French Canadian descent. I didn't realize mm-hmm. how French Canadian this guy was. Yeah. I didn't realize that French was his first language and he was really mm-hmm. uncomfortable speaking English, like almost up to the time he was in college. Right. And I, I would, I don't know. My, my read on it is that the Catholic thing for him is an ethnic identification. He's French Canadian and he's just mm-hmm. different. Than, he's different than most of the people around him. Most people are going to be Protestant or in New York Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so he just saw himself as being different than those people. But I don't know. I, it, it's interesting. You say that about the journals. I don't obviously know anything about that, but. Yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting way to, to think about it. You know, like Allen Ginsberg, way. like Allen Ginsberg. If you asked him, "Are you Jewish?" I'm pretty sure he'd say yes. Oh, he'd say but, yeah, but he didn't practice not religiously anything, yeah. Jewish in any way. I yeah. don't think. I, I get I get the sense that he was religiously Catholic. I really do. I really do. From from you know his interviews I, and story. Did I ever tell you the story when I went to Jordan and I went to a university there and they gave us a student ID card mm-hmm. and they said, "What religion are you?" And I was like, I was like, ah, you know, like religion is not really a big part of, you know, I'm not really, really. they were like, wrong. Are you an they were like, are you an atheist? And I'm like, no, I just like, you know, I, and they're like, are you a Christian or not? I'm like, yes, I guess I'm a Christian. And it dawned on me because me, I'm, I've come from a Protestant background. Mm-hmm. The statement, I am a Christian means I have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. And, and mm-hmm. I've been saying, you know, it's a statement of faith. Whereas mm-hmm. for most people around the world to say, I am a Christian, I am a Jew, I am a Muslim. It's who are you? Who are your parents? Yeah. What's your yeah. ethnicity? It's a so cultural, really, it's a cultural, it's a maybe cultural, reg- yeah. regional thing, maybe. Yeah. And, and I realized that as a cultural yeah. statement, it was a hundred percent true. I'm, yeah. I'm relating to other people here in this country. I'm, I'm relating to the people who are Muslim and the people who are Jewish and the people who are Christian differently because of my religious background, mm-hmm. despite not being religious, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess I kind of learned to see it that way as, as, yeah. as a marker in that sense, which is very different than I think Protestant, yeah. white Protestant Americans don't think of it that way. You have mm-hmm. to learn think of it that way from a different context going back to kerouac and catholicism he also decides to be buddhist for a little while you know yeah um, yeah so I remember 
one of his books, I guess it's probably Dharma Bums, I think is Dharma where that Bums. becomes the most explicit. There's none of that in yeah. this book. I don't think any of that comes across. No, not yet. He didn't get it, he didn't get into that, and I think until after this was maybe after this was published or before like between writing it and publishing it, maybe. I don't know. But you know, um, it's an interesting comparison to make from the things we've read is Catcher in the Rye. What that's before this, right? No, it, it might have been well that before like this was published. Yeah, it might have been 52, 53. It might have been published around then. Yeah. yeah. Salinger, but because some of the stylistic one. things that are happening in this book are happening in that book. Yeah. You know, the way he starts is very, it's not, like I said, it's not stream of consciousness, but it's very casual in terms of the structure. And it's very, he, so like he calls it, he calls it spontaneous prose. That's spontaneous what prose is what Kerouac yeah. calls it. Yeah. And yeah. he explicitly links it to impressionism. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, so I had this thought, and this, this might qualify as my overwrought thinking or theory of the week, but and tell me if this is off base, but I always thought that the impressionists existed because of the photograph, right? Mm -hmm. People invented the photograph. And so it no longer became necessary for a painter to reproduce reality as closely as they possibly could to what it really looks like. Mm -hmm. So it created this like psychological space and this necessity for something different. And that impressionism answered that call. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I was thinking about, okay, so if this is spontaneous, prose and he's talking about it like it's impressionism what would have happened technologically to make that necessary and i thought about it and realized it's not about the writing it's about jazz and jazz develops because suddenly you've got records and you can have like perfect fidelity copy of what somebody did in in music so you no longer have to create this formula of being able to reproduce the music so jazz kind of answers that call Mm -hmm. And this book, the style of prose is directly inspired by jazz. I don't really think anything changed in the technology of writing, but mm -hmm. maybe the typewriter, I guess you're not doing it. So I was thinking that too. And, and just, you know, since we, so, <laughs> so we stay on the book, one of the, some critical approaches or views of, of this book is that it reflects the jazz influence. Like that's been an influence. Right. And, and so I was thinking about that too. And I was, and I was, what I thought about was though, Di sort of different than what, what you're you're thinking of. So if you get a record, if you get a jazz record, the thing about it is it's always the same. And there is a formulaic sort of methodology to it. However, more freeform jazz or live jazz, which is what they, they like doing, they riff off of each other, right? Oh, and yeah. and and they'll and, and a whole song could be you know unplanned it's just it's this sort of spontaneous it, it's a spontaneous event if you see if you see jazz live by not a big band jazz but by you know three instruments on uh -huh. stage and they're feeding off each other and and that's sort of where i saw it when when he talks about spontaneous prose it just sort of goes along like the story just yeah. sort of unveils yeah, yeah. right the, the description of what you're saying about jazz is it's like a conversation Right. It's like, right. Yeah. You know, we all we all have a part to play. There's five of us up here and we're all having a conversation, mm -hmm. but we all have to pick up on subtle cues about when it's somebody else's turn to be part of the conversation and right. talk for a bit. And if they talk right. too much, it's obnoxious. And if they don't, yeah, you need to let that guy have his chance to talk. And, mm -hmm. and there's mm -hmm. that part where there's that kid in the book who wants to play with the jazz band. Yeah. The jazz band, I think it's in Chicago, and there's a kid following yeah. it. Right, right. Uh -huh. And they just they yeah. just won't let him be part of it. They just won't mm -hmm. let him and there's another one where a white guy gets on stage and tries to drum in the middle of, yeah. the, in the, middle of the jazz band. It's the same thing. It's like, you're not part of this conversation. Right. This is an A and B conversation. You can see your way out. You know? <laughs> right, right. You don't want anything to do right. with the guy. I thought it was very similar. I guess a book's not really a conversation, but it's like your part in the conversation, mm -hmm. I guess. It's, it's spontaneous. It's, I guess it's yeah. sort of like what we're doing right now. It's like, I'm glad there's no structure right. to this. Well, it's, like, <laughs> right. it's, it's very similar because occasionally while we're doing a show, I'll be talking like I am right now. And I'll be like, I should shut up. I've, I've been talking too long. It's time, time for Clint to say something, you know, you interrupt somebody because you have a, a beautiful one. Well, it, it, it is a conversation after all, right? So, right. Exactly. So Kerouac yeah. in Denver. So there was yeah. a great bar in lower downtown called Lodo, Denver. It was called El Chapel Tepic uh, or the Peck as people there like to call it. The Peck opened what? in 1990. What was it, it called? Was, it was called El Chapel Tepic. Oh, um, or okay. oh, like Chipol Chapultepec, like like the, correct. Yeah. But I think they called it Chapultepec okay. uh, versus Chapultepec, or maybe they called it Chapultepec. And I'm I, I have no idea. I'm not saying that's they, correct. I have no, no, they idea. called it one. They called it one or the other. But you're right. It's from it's from Mexico, from the, the Mexico town of Mexico. Yeah. Every, but everybody calls it the Peck. 
opened in 1933, right after Prohibition. And uh, they boasted, I think, number one or number two uh, liquor license in the state. Maybe number two. In the um, state of Colorado? In the state of Colorado, yeah. Um, oh, that's weird. Because they opened, like I said, in 30, December of 33. Oh, because the liquor licenses, you didn't have liquor licenses until after Prohibition. Correct, correct. Okay, got yeah. it. I got it, I got it. Got and it. Uh, there would have been and, bars in Colorado before that, but not. Yes, right, right. right. And so, but it was it was like a Mexican cantina type type place uh downtown denver was was filled you know it was, it was pretty rough uh working class or or just generally rough and the reason this place had that name was the uh, they would cash the checks for migrant workers and send them down to that place so everybody called it that uh based on the city in mexico where all the remittances were going, uh, people were saying yes, that. Yeah, that's yep. interesting. So in nineteen in the nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties, a gentleman married into the family. His wife's dad owned this bar, and he started. I think it was Gary Krantz was the guy's name. He started managing the bar for his father in law, and in like fifty one, fifty two, thereabouts, he brought in. He started bringing in jazz because he liked jazz, so he oh. started bringing in jazz bands. And this young man. He said, good looking guy, but kind of smelly uh, group of guys would come in and says the first and he showed me the first table and they would never order anything because they didn't have any money. But you didn't okay. have to pay cover. You didn't have to pay cover to listen to jazz. So they'd come in and just listen to jazz for free. And he said they'd go in the parking lot and do drugs, like smoke pot yeah. and stuff like that. And it was Car Kerouac and yeah. Cassidy and his whole crew. So That's that brilliant. was that was one of the two hangouts that we that we sort of covered in the book. Now that one's gone now, um, but the other place, if anybody's listening wants to go, if you're in Denver, there's a place called My Brother's Bar. I've been okay. That's the one I've been to. There, okay. I've, I went now, to a jazz bar in downtown Denver. It must have been that because I don't remember Chapultepec. I would remember that. Uh, well, My Brother's Bar was not jazz. It wasn't in downtown. It was sort of in, oh. sort of in the downtown area, but uh, it it was a super old bar. It's actually the oldest bar in the city. It's still there. That's the place now, I went. I, I, when I say downtown, I'm I'm using it completely. Okay. I, I really don't know the geography of the city very it's well. An old, it's an old. It was old, in the old actual bar. city yeah. of Denver, is what I mean. Yeah, old old bar. That place, uh, it's on the map because of the, the connection with Cassidy. When mm -hmm. Cassidy was in jail, one of the times he was in jail, they have a letter that asks a friend of his that he sent this letter to. Hey, can you go to this address, which is the address of my brother's bar? It was called something different then. Can you go to this address? And pay my two dollar bar tab, so that I don't, so that that they don't t re revoke my tab privileges, so that when I get out, I'll still be able to have a bar tab and be able to go there. And I don't know if they, the guy actually paid it or not, but but the letter exists. So I mean, that was one of that was one of Cassidy's haunts, at least. And Kerouac probably, you know, he would have taken cool. Kerouac there as well. So that's good. Um, I'd like to go and do. I would love to do an on the road tour of Denver, because, <laughs> because I've yeah. been to a lot of these other places. I, I know San Francisco. I've been there, and I've gone mm -hmm. all kinds of cool places. Obviously, New York. Sorry for the abrupt ending, but that's it for episode eighty-six of Toasting the Classics. If we ever do a two-part again, we'll learn to work on our transitions. For those playing along at home, put aside another serving of those rusty nails for the second half and our discussion on whether this book is a classic. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and any screeds written in spontaneous prose detailing your love life. Maybe don't do that. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Mm -hmm.